<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends and neighbors. Good to see you again, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, with all the violence and civil unrest stirred up by Donald Trump, we've heard a lot of warnings lately, especially if Trump were ever to get back in power, God forbid, about the risk of a total breakdown of democracy. You know what they're talking about. Declaration of martial law, violent riots by white mobs against homes and businesses of law-abiding black Americans, FBI agents rounding up and deporting anybody who dared criticize the government, magazines and newspapers censored by the government, publishers thrown in jail, would-be Jewish immigrants denied entry into the country, and American Jews arrested and sent back to Europe only because they're Jews. Huh, you think this could never happen? Breaking news, it already has. Here in the United States of America, between 1917 and 1921, during and right after World War I, under President Woodrow Wilson. Yep, it's all laid out in a powerful new book, American Midnight, by the legendary historian Adam Hochschild. Believe me, you'll be as shocked as I was to learn what this government got away with in those four years. And Adam Hochschild warns us, if it happened once, it could happen again. Adam Hochschild, good to reconnect with you after several years, and congratulations on American Midnight, your latest dynamite book, Adam. Good to have you here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. So in this book, you focus on these four years, 1917 to 1921, which, which really represented a breakdown of democracy. I guess my first question is, why those four years? I mean, what were the factors? It was like a perfect storm, right, that led to that total breakdown. It was a perfect storm because it was a combination of two things. In April 1917, the United States joined the First World War, which was the largest world war that the world had yet seen. And going to war always kicks off a kind of hysteria in almost all countries at almost all times. And then that was followed some six months later by the Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks, the most extreme faction of the left in Russia, seized power. And many people in the United States and government and in business were terrified that the Bolshevik Revolution might spread to the United States. Not a realistic fear, I, I think, but uh, the combination of those two things led to what I think is the greatest assault on civil liberties in this country since the end of slavery. Well, <laughs> having read the book, I would have to agree with you. But why then has this period received so little att attention? Well, I think all countries like to sanitize their history. And uh -huh. I've certainly 
noticed that when I've been writing about other parts of the world, and we certainly do it here. We Mm. usually like to portray American history as something that was always going onward and upward. You know, the founding fathers came together. They came up with this great (laughs) constitution. Yes, there was a problem of slavery, but, you know, then Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and everything was okay. And Mm. it's been sort of onward and upward ever since then. But in fact, uh, you know, I think there's a systematic practice of, you know, covering over parts of history that aren't so glorious. Uh, If, for example, you had visited Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia before 1970, there would be no indication among these uh, wonderful collection of 18th century reconstructed buildings that half the population of the original Williamsburg were slaves. Mm. But mm-hmm. that changed because of the impact of the civil rights movement. And today that history is told very differently. I would love to see the history of 1917 to 21 told very differently in high school textbooks from how it's told now. Uh. You remind me of every time I see the Jefferson Memorial, I cringe, right? Because <laughs> if only people knew the true story about Thomas Jefferson. But at any rate, that's another subject. But back to your book, what, what's, what's really striking, I found, is that, and you make this point, Adam, while we were fighting a war for democracy in Western Europe, <laughs> there was a war against democracy here at home, both going on at the same time. Yeah, that's true. And I think, you know, wars often bring out uh, a feeling that anybody who dissents from this great enterprise ought to be suppressed. And initially, that was the, the cause of this tremendous clampdown on civil liberties. And people don't realize how severe it was. During those four years, Roughly a thousand Americans went to prison for a year or more, and a much larger number for shorter periods, solely for things they wrote or said. During those four years, the government practiced press censorship on a huge scale, shut down some 75 newspapers and magazines. Also, during that time, there was a nationwide vigilante group, the American Protective League, which was chartered by the Justice Department, quarter of a million members. So these are some of the things that happened in that period. The, there was also the passage of the Espionage Act under President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, what, I mean, as we, see, we hear the word espionage, right? We think of spies. What constituted a violation of the Espionage Act at this time? Well, you know, despite the name, it had little to do with espionage. There were roughly 2,000 people indicted under it in this period. Only 10 of them were alleged German spies. Mm. It was the act that allowed the government to shut down those newspapers and magazines that I mentioned because uh, it gave to the postmaster general, who was actually a dreadful guy, uh, the power to control what traveled through the U.S. mail. And for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and the vast majority of the country's foreign language press, the U.S. mail was the only way that they could reach their readers. So that was one provision of the Espionage Act. Another provision was very vague and sweeping and penalized anybody, you know, you could get up to 10 years in prison and a $20,000 fine for making statements that 
I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something like casting disrespect on the United States or its armed forces. And that was the law that Wilson used to imprison his political opponents, which meant anybody who spoke out against this enterprise that he had deemed uh, a great thing, which was taking the U.S. into the war. Mm -hmm. Now, there were, and you mentioned a couple of them, specific targets during this time, people, groups targeted by the government or by their vigilantes who were sort of accepted as almost an arm of the government, but mainly, I think, targeted African Americans. Uh, I'm a, Adam. You document things I had never, I did know about Tulsa, but East St. Louis, the the white race riots in East St. Louis. Um, describe that to us a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you call them white riots because that's really what they are. Uh, there were a number of such events that happened in this period. East St. Louis was in the summer of 1917. Almost all the others were in the summer of 1919, and they're always in the history books, if they make it there at all, as race riots. But they really yeah. called white riots because these they were, uh, in all cases, started by white people who were angry that blacks were moving into their neighborhoods because this was the period of the Great Migration, black people leaving the American South where they could not vote. They were in a region where there was often as, as many as one lynching every week. They wanted to go to northern cities where there were better paying jobs than picking cotton as sharecroppers. But when they got there, they found that their white neighbors didn't want them there because it tended to lower the value of housing in a neighborhood. It was competition for jobs. And of course, somebody whose previous job had been picking cotton as a sharecropper, was often willing to work at a factory for less money mm -hmm. than a white person working there could make. So these were some of the tensions. And then when the, the real uh, enormous number of killings took place, which was the summer of 1919, added to that was the fact that uh, during that year, some 4 million men were released from the U.S. armed forces uh, about 400,000 of them black, the remainder white, they were competing for jobs that were very scarce because the war industry factories making machine guns, tanks, planes, destroyers, and so on, had shut down. Furthermore, many Americans, particularly white Southerners, were horrified that 400,000 blacks had been in the military and mm. had learned to shoot. And... Uh, there were, that summer of 1919, there were more than 70 lynchings of black Americans. Uh, 11 of them were of war veterans. Three of those guys were lynched while in uniform. Jesus. Yeah. Unbelievable. And the, I mean, these African Americans in uniform had to believe that having fought for democracy, fought for the United States, put on the uniform, that they might have... <laughs> been treated a little better when they got home wasn't the case at all was it? that's right that was their hope uh and the same thing happened after world war ii where there were attacks on black veterans and and you point out that in almost all of these cases if there was any attempt to bring people to justice none of these white people were ever charged with a crime virtually never 
And in some cases, like the worst killings of all, took place in a place called Elaine, Arkansas in 1919, where both federal troops and local vigilantes killed several hundred blacks whose original crime in their eyes had been trying to form a sharecropper's union. And in that case, we, you know, there was, there was no uh, retribution against those white killers because, you know, some of the killers had been federal troops. Uh, we don't even know how many people died in the Elaine massacre because a lot of the bodies of the victims were simply tossed into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. Uh, another group that was targeted, of course, sound familiar, immigrants, immigrants particularly from Asia, immigrants certainly from Germany, or immigrants who happen to be Jewish. That's right. I mean, this country has always seen waves of hysteria against immigrants. And of course, Donald Trump tried to capitalize on one to get elected the first time, talking about Mexican rapists and so on. But the usual pattern is that the people whose ancestors have been here for several generations get angry and upset at the people who are just arriving. Mm -hmm. And today, it's the target of most of that wrath is, is people from Latin America coming over the southern border. A hundred years ago, it was different. The majority of white Americans had ancestors who'd come from Northwestern Europe, you know, England, Netherlands, Germany. Scandinavia. They were alarmed that starting in around 1890, the big wave of immigration was coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. In other words, uh, Italians, uh, Poles, and Jews. And those groups had not yet, so to speak, become white in American eyes. They were the target of tremendous hysteria and some violence during this period. And in the 1920 presidential election, the leading candidates up to the very last minute for both the Republican and Democratic nominations were campaigning on platforms of mass deportations. Uh, the, and the, I mean, the anti-Semitism was rampant, right? I mean, um, I, I remember, I believe, that at one point in this time, uh, any Jewish Jews coming in from uh, Eastern Europe were banned from coming into the country. Well, in effect, what happened was uh, during this period that I'm writing about, the pressure built for changes in the immigration law, which became finalized a couple of years later in 1924 which basically slammed the door on new mm -hmm. immigration to the U.S. for the next 41 years. That was the law that kept out the hundreds of thousands, possibly millions, of refugees from the Holocaust who might have come here had immigration been freely allowed during that period. Also uh, under attack, labor unions, especially the Wobblies. Uh, I mean, reading your book, Adam, it's like people believe that these wobblies were really um, capable of like overthrowing the country or something. They weren't really such a threat, were they? No, they weren't. There were only about 150,000 of them. They were only about 5% of uh, unionized American workers. Uh, their bark was considerably bigger than their bite. But they were the most colorful uh, group of yeah. labor unionists, and they caught the imagination of middle-class people as well, because they had the best songs, the best music, the best <laughs> posters. 
and also the best attitude. They, they preach that anybody could join the union, uh, native born or immigrant, man or woman, black or white. And that was quite unusual for labor unions in those days. The government perceived them as a big threat because uh, they were involved in a number of major strikes in 1917. And also most individual wobblies were strongly against the war. Even though the organization deliberately didn't take a position on it, uh, the government knew that uh, individual wobblies were not at all enthusiastic about uh, joining World War I. So they made a sweeping crackdown on the union. Uh, hundreds of its leaders were arrested, put on trial in several mass trials. The big, biggest of them, with, which began with more than 100 wobblies on trial, took place in Chicago. Uh, was and still is the largest civilian criminal trial in American history. Uh, everybody was found guilty on all counts, and the judge passed out a total of 807 years of prison time. And that essentially wrecked the organization. They were never a significant force after this. Right. Now, there were some, I would almost call them evil people, characters uh, in your book who carried out uh, this, th th these programs, uh, Mitchell Palmer, I want to talk to you more about him. Of course, the attorney general, J. Edgar Hoover, the rising star in the Bureau of Investigation. But it all happened under the administration during the administration of Woodrow Wilson. Adam, I always thought that Woodrow Wilson was this great progressive. He certainly had that reputation, but in fact, he was a racist and an anti-Semite, wasn't he? Yeah, he's a very complicated man because uh, he's not somebody that you can easily loathe without contradict, without uh, mm. hesitation. Uh, in some ways, he was progressive. Uh, in his first term, especially, he favored the graduated income tax and some regulation of business, child labor laws, and so on. And to give him credit, the great cause of his life was the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. which he passionately believed would rid the world of war. Uh, in actual fact, I don't think a League of Nations with the United States as the most influential nation in it, which was what his vision was, would have had any more success at stopping war than the UN has been since it was formed in 1945. But nonetheless, there's a certain idealism there, and his commitment to that cause shortened his life because he went on a huge nationwide speaking tour at a time when he was in very ill health, talking about the League of Nations, exhausted himself, and on that trip suffered the first of several near-fatal strokes, which really put him out of commission for the rest of his presidency. But at the same time as he had that idealistic side, he presided over all this repression, press censorship, um, throwing people in prison, you know, including his own opponent from the 1912 election, Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for president that year, won 6% of the popular vote in 1912. He didn't run in 1916 because he believed Wilson's campaign slogan that Wilson was going to continue to keep us out of World War I. But then when that didn't happen, Debs started speaking out against the war. The Wilson administration had him arrested and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So, you know, this very complicated man presiding over immense repression with his 
well-spoken, professorial dignity, you know, the author of a dozen books, former university president, uh, a more genteel, dignified, well-spoken president you can't imagine, which just goes to show that you don't have to be an orange-haired loudmouth to be a demagogue. <laughs> but so did Wilson know what was going on? Uh, with the Department of Je- the you know the Palmer raids and the Hoover crackdowns and uh, yes, now the Palmer raids we don't know how much he knew about that in detail because that happened after his stroke, mm-hmm. but uh, it's highly likely that Palmer talked to Wilson before Wilson had his stroke about his plans because they met for several times. They met several times. But as you point out, there's also all the press press censorship and, uh, you know, these white riots and everything. Uh, Wilson was very enthusiastic about press censorship. He actually wanted a stronger censorship clause in the Espionage Act, uh, finally acceded to that being removed by Congress and realized that he could do all the censoring he wanted through this power that was vested in the postmaster general. Uh, And he was quite aware of people being sent to jail for speaking out against the war. And you can even find him, and I quote one instance in the book, of his sending to his attorney general, this was before Palmer, the preceding attorney general, uh, a an anti-war newspaper in Chicago, which had gotten Wilson upset and, and said to his attorney general, can't we do something about these people? Uh, and, you know, so he was, you know, this great intellectual, but at the same time, anybody whose intellect didn't agree with his on certain issues, he was happy to send them to jail. He also uh, segregated the United States government right, Uh, among federal employees in the United States government. And you point out, I've got a note here, page 48, before he ran for president, I guess he was still a professor at Princeton or maybe president at Princeton. He he actually espoused what we call today the white replacement theory. That's right. That's right. Um, I don't have the book right in front of me, but I know the passage you're thinking of where he's talking about the the floods of immigrants coming to the United States, now coming from places like Hungary and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and they're debasing our racial stock. He was very proud that he was thoroughly Anglo-Saxon, and he once spoke of himself as belonging to the old colonial stock that built this country up. In Mm -hmm. fact, there was nothing colonial. His mother and all four of his grandparents had actually been born in the British Isles. But to be ethnically Anglo-Saxon was what mattered to him. And he had little use for people who had other backgrounds. His first cabinet were all Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Well, I'm just, uh, particularly having read your book, I'm just astounded that Wilson is still, for the most part, held in such high regard and considered in such high regard by American historians. I mean, we still have the Wilson Institute in Washington, right? Isn't there a Wilson Institute at Princeton still? And uh, I think at Princeton they took the name off. Uh-huh. And I'm embarrassed to say that I once won the Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson Prize of the American Historical Association. (laughs) Neither of them are among my favorite presidents. (laughs) Oh, boy. And now, 
of course, reading this, you can't help but feel the echoes of Donald Trump and what we've just been through uh, reverberating through the pages of American uh, Midnight. I'm going to get into that with uh, Adam Hochschild, but we have to take a quick break here first on the uh, Bill Press pod and then come, then come back with our guest, Adam Hochschild, and his new book, American Midnight. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on the Bill Press Pod, our guest today, um, people call him the legendary historian, Adam Hochschild, his new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, all about uh, these frightening years uh, in American history, 1917 through 1921. Uh, Adam, when you see, hear Donald Trump and see Donald Trump and the Proud Boys, it's almost like deja vu all over again for you, I guess. Yeah, it sure is because, you know, these impulses go very deep in American history. There's a strain of nativism, which, as I was saying, gets directed against different groups as time goes on. You know, for a long time, it was directed against uh, Jews, Poles, Italians. Now it's directed against Latin Americans. It's sort of always been directed against Asians. Um, There's this strain of vigilante violence, which goes back to frontier days. 
and it goes back to the vigilante groups that uh, Southern plantation owners organized to chase mm-hmm. down runaway slaves. Right. And uh, so there is a direct line between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and this group that flourished uh, starting in 1917, the American Protective League, uh, which just relished uh, beating up people they disagreed with. I can just read you a quote that uh, an American Protective League member wrote about in 1917 beating up some people who organized an anti-war rally in Grant Park. Here's what he wrote. Three of us worked our way to the speaker's stand. When one particularly vicious orator began to incite the mob, I jumped on the platform and grabbed him. A few seconds later, I landed on the heads of the people in front. My compatriots rushed to me, and shoulder to shoulder we battled for our lives. Wagons full of police with riot clubs arrived, and we managed to arrest the leaders. So these are vigilantes carrying out citizens' arrests of people whose politics they didn't like. That's what it was about. And we see today, or hear today from some of these groups, the same sort of simplistic solutions, right? Uh, Preventing Muslims from coming uh, into the country, uh, accusing the BLM movement, right, of 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 being uh, espousing uh, violence. Uh, the, the increasing attacks today, anti-Semitic attacks, of course, continuing against George Soros. I mean, how long have they been attacking him, right? But yeah. even even Donald Trump saying American Jews basically have to get their act together and recognize who their friends are, right? Yeah, um, it's alarming. Yeah. And yet, ironically, you know, Trump's one of Trump's top aides who's orchestrating a lot of this, Stephen Miller, is himself Jewish. Go figure, I guess. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I have to say there is there is some, some, a bright side to your book. There are some wonderful people, uh, in addition to the rogues like A. Mitchell Palmer and J. Edgar Hoover and what was his name, Burleson, the, the, the Postmaster oh, General, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, some real heroes. Um uh, Robert LaFollette, right? I mean, he was an extraordinary senator, wasn't he, from Wisconsin? He was, he was a Republican senator from Wisconsin. Uh, remember, the Republicans and Democrats in this period were not divided quite the way they are now. There were progressive and conservative factions in each party. And LaFollette was a progressive Republican. He was strongly opposed to the U.S. entering the war. And he said, if this is a war, like the president says, to make the world safe for democracy, why aren't we advocating for democracy in Ireland, in Egypt, in India? Mm-hmm. Of course, these places were all colonies of our ally, Great Britain. Uh, La Follette started to receive nooses in the mail. Uh, every faculty member except two at his alma mater, the University of Wisconsin, signed a statement denouncing him. He was hanged in effigy on the campus. He was kicked out of a club he belonged to in Madison, Wisconsin's capital. Um, And the Senate opened an investigation into whether he should be expelled from that body. Mm -hmm. Just for his political views, right. Um, And then you, of course, you highlight three individuals, among many others, who did serve time in jail uh, for their opposition to the war. Uh, Emma Goldman. Kate O'Hare, and, of course, Eugene Debs, candidate for president. All heroes. That's right. right. They were all heroes. 
And uh, Kate O'Hare, who was the most prominent woman orator in the Socialist Party, actually ended up in prison in the very next cell to Emma Goldman, (laughs) uh, the anarchist. Even though they would have disagreed with each other politically on the outside, they became fast friends in prison. And each of them wrote her recollections of the other. And when you're trying to construct a book, as I do, out of different focusing on different characters when you have two of your people expressing their opinions of the other it's a writer's dream they became fast friends remained friends the rest of their lives and continue to correspond uh you mentioned kate o'hare as the leading socialist uh and you point out that one impact of the palmer raids and everything else was that the social they basically just and imprisoning eugene debs destroyed the socialist party but that the socialist party in the long run through its policies, did have quite a positive impact on the American political system. Well, I wish it had had more impact because I think had the party not been essentially destroyed in this period, it was never really a force after this, uh, it never would have been a majority party in the U.S. American socialism was never the kind of powerful movement that it was in many countries in Western Europe. But had the party continued to function, getting something like 6% of the popular vote that they got in 1912, they might have pushed the major parties towards having something like the better social safety net and national health care system that they have in Canada, for example, mm-hmm. and in many Western European countries. Uh, so part of what the Wilson administration was trying to do in this period was really to crush the Socialist Party. Right. But, and yet, uh, as you point out, social security was an idea that socialists first pushed, right, in this country, as well as universal health care. That's right. And the first, it took 25 years before that happened. The second, it took uh, close to a century. And we still don't have the kind of comprehensive health care that covers everybody in the way that, you know, Almost all countries in Western Europe, Canada, Taiwan, all kinds of other places have. Even Costa Rica, which has one-sixth the per capita income of the United States, has a life expectancy two years longer than us because they've got a good national health care system. Uh, I was also struck toward the end of where you mentioned national fear whipped up by J. Edgar Hoover and others of the communist take, and, J- and not to mention Joe McCarthy too, don't, not to forget him, right, about the communist takeover uh, and the Red Scare. Um, and yet armed revolution never came from the left wing <laughs> in this country, did it? That, always- that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and yet fear of that armed revolution has been such a powerful force. In fact, the thing that really brought this period to an end in a way was that uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general, who was the leading candidate for the Democratic nomination for president in 1920, repeatedly predicted that on May Day of 1920, the <laughs> International Workers' Holiday, there would be an armed communist revolt throughout the United States. And uh, they alerted the National Guard. Cities put their police force on alert. New York City, for instance, called in all three shifts of its police, put one shift out on the streets, the others waiting in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards, extra security everywhere. Nothing happened. 
Uh, and that kind of took the wind out of Palmer's presidential campaign, and it started to take the wind out of this Red Scare period generally. Right. And so when the armed revolution occurred, it occurred on January 6th by the right wing. That's right. That's the, right. The, the, the Proud Boys, right. 2021, yeah. So you raise a question at the very end of the book, Adam. How do we prevent these dark forces from taking over again? What do you think? Well, Bill, I think the answer there is that we just have to be very alert to what kind of crisis might give uh, people an excuse to Mm. again suspend civil liberties, crack down on dissidents. We know 100 years ago, it was American entry into the war and the Russian Revolution. Um, You know, I fear what might happen if there were Trump or somebody like him in the White House, and there was something else like the September 11th attacks happened again. That could become an excuse for doing a lot of very nasty stuff. Uh, One pressure that we know we're going to be under, not in the form of a single crisis at one moment, but a pressure for years to come is uh, global warming Mm. is forcing Mm -hmm. people out of the equatorial parts of the world. And they are wanting to flood northward to the United States, to Western Europe. That's going to be a pressure on us. And we have to be sure that people don't twist that into an excuse for repressing civil liberties here at home. Right. And of course, Donald Trump tried to use the BLM movement, right, as an excuse for uh, uh, massive put down of civil liberties. Adam Hochschild, a a wonderful, wonderful job here on American Midnight, the Great War, a violent peace and democracy's forgotten crisis, a real um, eye-opener, historical and journalistic masterpiece. Adam, thank you for your uh, good work and thank you for your time on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. It has been a real pleasure. And that's it for today's podcast. American Midnight, again, is the name of the book by Adam Hochschild. Uh, it is a frightening book, but a very powerful, very important book. A lot of lessons there that we should learn. And uh, there's a link in the episode notes to today's podcast to get your own copy of American Midnight by Adam Hochschild. Uh, that's it for today. Uh, Have a great week, and we'll be back Friday with another Reporters Roundtable, looking back at all the news of the week from our nation's capital and the political news around the country. Take care, be good, take care of yourselves, and come back and see us on Friday for our Reporters Roundtable and the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.